Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Thanks for joining us today on the Yield Street webinar. I'm joined here by Adam Lusterberg of Avant Capital. Uh, before I introduce Adam, I'll introduce myself again for those who are not familiar with me. My name is Mitch Rosen. I'm the Senior Director and Head of Real Estate at Yield Street. Again, thanks for taking the time to join us today and to learn more about what we're doing and the most recent episode of The Yield. I'm joined today again, like I said, by Adam Lusterberg, one of two co-founding partners of Avant Capital, where he's responsible for the corporate development, investment origination, and capital formation. Uh, since inception, Avant has made over 100 separate loan investments, including newly originated bridge loans and the acquisition of non-performing loans, which is a hot topic these days. Uh, he currently serves on the Board of Governors of the New York Mortgage Bankers Association and studied economics at the American University in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Adam, to the show. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks for having joining us. We appreciate that. Um, so for those who don't know, Adam and Yul should have done loans in the past, uh, three loans in particular. We look forward to doing more with Adam. And I think we'll touch about different topics today. Let's start off the bat, Adam, talking about you know, historically where Avant Capital has focused their attention and time with regards to deploying capital and where you're spending more of your time now looking forward, call it starting maybe in 2020 through, you know, the next two, three years. Right. Okay. So we started our business 100% in New York City. Um, you know, I think the first 50 loan investments that we made, newly originated bridge loans and non-performing loans that we bought were all in New York City. Most of them were in Manhattan. The rest were in the boroughs. Uh, you know, we had you know one or two that were in the New York metro, but we were 100% focused on the New York City metro. So the reason why we focused on New York was we felt that you know for short term as a short term lender, it was important to be in a market where there was a lot of transaction velocity. So there, if we ever had to take back a property, um, you know, that property was located in a market where there were a lot of bids, there was depth in the market. So that was one advantage. Another advantage of having a high velocity market where there are a lot of trades is it's, it makes it easier to value real estate. So if you look at, you know, just, just to throw out an example, 135th Street in Upper Manhattan, on the north side of the block, you have, you know, between any two avenues, you have... 35 row houses on the south side of the block, you have 35 row houses and the same pattern repeats itself, you know, from east to west on 135th street. Same thing is true on 134th street and 136th street. You know, given the fact there are so many similar assets concentrated around the property where, you know, we, you know, you're considering making a loan, there's a lot of data there to get comfortable with, you know, the value of the property that you're looking at. So lots of data, 
deep market. You know, we felt comfortable with New York because, frankly, because of the labor, the labor pool there, the talent pool in and around New York City. We felt that, you know, there are a lot of creative, hardworking people in New York City that, frankly, attract employers who want to tap into that energy. So we felt like, you know, New York City was going to be a place and is a place that um, was going to continue to attract employment. And then, you know, all that separate and aside from, you know, the fact that it's a cultural center, tourism magnets, you know, arguably, you know, one of one or two central locations for um, fashion, media, entertainment, and and finance. So yep. you know, we felt like that was that was a good place to start. There are a lot of transactions, uh, you know, available that were, you know, within the range of loans that we wanted to be making, which was one to 10 million when we started. So that's where we started. And you're also in your base in this area, right? Like, I mean, there's some folks, not unlike you, who have a, you know, geographic focus, they want the ability to touch, see, visit, maybe weekly, monthly, consistently the assets they lend against. That becomes harder as you try to diversify geography, right? Maybe you hire local people or you hire partners outside your, your locale. So continuing on that trend, talking about New York City, what has changed, whether it be on your view or your view of the marketplace specifically, that has led you to branch out and you know, seek more broader you know, geography, geographic areas? So in the spring of 2019, New York State changed the rent regulation laws. Uh, it's, it's actually the rent, the rent laws are statewide, but they impact New York City disproportionately. So in New York City, 45% of the entire residential rental housing stock is covered under the under the rent regulation laws. And in uh, the spring of 2019, they they made dramatic changes to, you know, to those regulations, made it very difficult for owners who had frankly um, purchased properties with certain business plans that were drawn up on the board when, 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 when the regulations were one thing, they changed them. So, you know, there was loss of value there, um, introduction of uncertainty, and frankly, it made it very difficult for owners of these rent regulated buildings to create, create value in those buildings. It was, it was devastating in, in, in like in a very simple terms. I think people had heard about it. It was talked about in the papers. I think people expected not to get passed. There was some kind of view of did Rebney kind of drop the ball or, you know, but it's done. It's, it's happened. And it's, so uh, is your point that that really influenced your view, broadly speaking? Nobody thought it would happen. And so, so even though it was in the news and under consideration for a long time, nobody really thought it was going to happen. So when it did happen, and this is in the context of, you know, the de Blasio uh, administration where, you know, there were other signals starting to present themselves in New York city, um, you know, a more visible homeless situation, crime starting to tick up, lack of support for the police, which is, you know, look, safety and low crime, um, you know, helped make New York City what it is and what it was. And yep. when you strip that out of the equation, it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit scary. So all those things were starting to happen. And so, you know, we made the decision that, you know, we were going to only look at deals in New York City on a very select basis. And, you know, we've only made four loans in New York over the past two years for that reason. Okay. And tell us how you think about diversifying now that you've made that call. 
has has your view of New York changed? Um, not that you're you you wholesale dismiss it, but you're just more selective, like you said, leverage levels, location, borrower quality, return profiles, et cetera. I mean, you mentioned specifically the effect on the multifamily market. There's obviously office and there's well, not really industrial per se, but there is retail and um, hospitality, clearly. Have you looked at those sectors at all still for New York, or do you kind of lump them all together in terms of how you think about New York versus other locales? Yeah. So, you know, we, we stopped being aggressive in New York because, you know, because of the change in the rent laws. And with the pandemic, you know, in the spring of 2020, and, you know, this kind of breakdown of the commuter culture in New York, retail in, in New York City was already coming under pressure you know, because of e-commerce and frankly, oversupply. And, um, you know, the rents came so far so fast that, you know, there was already a downdraft that was present. It was, it was obvious in, in, uh, in retail in Manhattan. And the pandemic obviously put that on, on a different level. You know, the commuter situation right now, I think, I don't think anybody believes that Midtown is going to see 100% or 105% of the commuter volume that it saw pre-pandemic, I think you know everybody's hoping that you know we end up getting back to seventy percent, sixty-five. What time frame are you thinking? Five years, three years, twelve months? Like, where's your? Do you think it ever gets back there? I, I don't. I don't know if it ever gets back there. There's been a cultural change. You know, the people uh, you know that that I talk to that were going into New York City every day. You know, there, obviously there was a period of time where they went in never. But they've all, you know, negotiated with their place of employment to go in once a week, twice a week, three times a week. So they may be part of New York City headcount, but that doesn't mean they're going to be walking by the uh, the deli on 52nd and 3rd Third Avenue uh, five days a week. If right. There's a very good no. chance that they're not going to be. Yep, that's right. I, I think, and and I mean, look, we're in Midtown East, right? We're in 50th and Park. I've clearly seen a a, a shift in mindset as a positive for New York, people coming in, trains more busy, but you're right. Like it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a slow, uh, probably a fairly slow return. I guess that kind of leads to the follow question, Adam, like where are you trying to deploy capital? How are you thinking about where you're looking? Is demographics? Is it, is it migration? Is it um, cap rates just being more, you know, more attractive? Is it better debt yields or better coupons? Like what is it? Yeah, and it turns out that you know all those factors apply to you know a certain segment of states. You know they're mostly they're mostly in the South. They're you know kind of pro growth, pro business, low tax environments. You know the top you know the top two are really Texas and Florida. It's very easy to understand uh, you know the you know the story in those states. And you know look for the past twenty years you know um, prior to the pandemic, it was very hard to make a mistake in New York City, right? Yeah, uh, you know right. rising tide you know, lifted all boats, right. uh, people were just buying anything and they thought they were geniuses. Uh, they could, they could pay any price, do anything that they wanted. And, uh, you know, three years later, you know, they had a happy story to tell. That's not going to be the case in New York city for a while, but that is the case right now in Texas, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, you know, places. Um, and look, these places have the added advantage of, you know, respecting property rights and creditor rights. In the state of New York, uh, the situation with foreclosures is obscene. Uh, you know, having yeah. to wait, you know, two to three years to foreclose, borrowers can default and hold you ransom for years, and you know their their property, which is our collateral, can waste. And there's really nothing that we can do about it except continue to spend money and and and, and wait for the courts to react to you know to our foreclosure. In the state of Texas, you foreclose in 45 days. 
in Texas and Georgia, they compete against each other, you know, who who can do it quicker. Yeah. It's the same thing, you know, Florida, although it's a judicial foreclosure process, it's, you know, it's reasonable. So, you know, all things being equal, you know, being in a state where our rights as creditors are respected is a, is a big net positive. So we've been focusing on those states. You know, what I would add maybe Adam is that, well, I do agree with some of the things you've highlighted, taking a kind of devil's advocate for a quick second. I am still confident and, and bullish on New York from a longer term perspective. I do think there's some near term challenges. When you think about the reasons why people do want to be in New York, whether it be, you mentioned media, you mentioned entertainment, you mentioned um, uh, fashion, you mentioned finance, I mean, you mentioned legal and other insurance industries. I mean, there's there's a whole core that resides here. You know, the, the, the old saying, you can make it here, but get anywhere. There is some truth to that. And the cultural aspects that make New York why it is the restaurants, the nightlife, the location, all that good stuff, that will come back, I do believe, over time. And I think provides provides some tailwinds to the city. But not to say that people are still not picking up and moving and making a choice with their with their feet, selling residences. I've I've heard multiple people that know friends of mine who go to Florida and other locations. Um, same for San Francisco and same for LA and same for Chicago. And that trend may accelerate over time. But I do think there's a backfill of people who want to be here as well. I just don't know how long that takes to come back. So I'm, I just think I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on it, but I do, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously bullish, I guess is the right way to think about it. Did you see yourself still continuing to look for New, at New York stuff or are you quicker to, um, I would say dismiss, but have a more sharper focus and, and, and like a more, more uh, stricter eye, if you will. We're, we're underwriting New York City deals in a, in a much more, we're just being much tighter and much more careful. Okay. Now in New York. Got it. If it takes three years to foreclose and you make a 75% LTV loan, and the reason you're foreclosing is because there's been a value, a, a, you know, a dilution of value, that 75% loan, you know, market comes down. Uh, that's why your borrower's in trouble, right? That's why he can't sell. Yep. Uh, um, you know, so now your 75% loan is a 90% loan. Yep. A tighter. Yeah, of course. If you, if you foreclose in 45 days and liquidate the asset, you cut off all the market risk. And yep. you know, you get not only do you get out whole, you still have you still have your yield. If you have to wait three years, you know, meanwhile, you know, these these borrowers are not paying the taxes. Yeah, yeah of course. Insurance. Right. It happens. Yeah, HOA or sewer charges, electricity, utilities, pick your expense. We're being a lot more careful. Just to- right. Let's switch topics here for a second um, and move to the next topic. You know, market forces and you know, we talked about this a bit briefly in our in our prep for this webinar, because you highlighted something that's really, I think, not thought of as as inherently tied to CRE, commercial real estate, in, in all asset, in all types of asset classes. We mentioned supply disruptions. You mentioned transitory inflation, what that impact could be, what timing looks like. Talk me through how you think about this. And, you know, if you actually have a thesis or it's more something you're you're focused on and kind of keeping an eye towards, but not really sure what impact it has, if any. Yeah. Well, I don't have any conclusions. I'm just, you know, looking at things that I see happening and frankly, wonder, wondering what's going to happen next about it, it's definitely going to impact our field because if, you know, what starts transitory inflation, you know, look, long-term inflationary cycles start, start look, and when they, then they start, they look like they're trans, they could be transitory. Right. So, you know, I think the consensus among economists right now is that this cycle is going to end at one point, but it's unclear to me why, why they think that, you know, there are just a lot of things happening I, and I made a list, so I'm going to refer to my notes. You know, we have two and a half tr- trillion dollars in what's called excess savings, which came about during the pandemic. Wow. Um, you know, so that's, um, you know, money that was saved beyond normal saving rates. 
that took place during the pandemic. And, you know, the economists are modeling that and saying, you know, potentially 20 to 30% of that is going to be, uh, you know, kind of bled back into the economy over the course of the next year. If 20% of that gets bled back into the economy over the course of the next year, it's $500 billion. That's two and a half percent of GDP right there. So, you know, that's, that's just, wow. you, you know, know, putting it, putting it in stark terms like that, Adam is, is actually kind of, yeah. uh, I didn't know that number, uh, but hearing it, you tell that that's a meaningful um, tailwind for you know buying power or, or, or buying of services, buying of goods, whatever it may be. The fiscal Real estate of uh, you know two trillion dollars—that's ten percent of GDP. So wow. you know the you know the economic stimulus and you know towards the end of two thousand and twenty, it was like a one point five trillion. There were several of them, but you know one point five. That's that's a ten percent tailwind. You've got money supply increasing by twenty five percent last year. Projected to increase by 25% this year. We've got uh, oil at $70 a barrel, whereas you know most of last year it was trading under $40. And people watching this uh, webcast probably remember that the big problem with oil was we have so much of it, where do we put it? Our ships, right? Offshore boats to kind of warehouse it for time. Yeah, it was a them. storage issue. It created a crisis. And then you, know, you just look at, uh, look at underlying commodities. There's uh, you know, the S&P underlying commodity index in November was at 1700. Today it's, it's at 2550. So all of these inputs are pervasive throughout the economy. What's transitory about it? Right. I, I don't know. So do, we do you never experienced anything like this in our lifetime, Mitch. You no, know, that's yeah. for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, I agree with that. I mean, that, you, you have to go back to 73 or 78 or 79 under Carter and or you know, Nixon slash Ford to where we saw that, you know, I don't want to call it stagflation. That was more in the late seventies, but these shocks to the system where, you know, costs really ran up and, you know, you think of Volcker in, uh, she's not, Vol uh, yeah. Paul Volcker in the 82, where you really built a bracket inflation by raising rates. Right. I mean, you heard Janet Yellen recently say, I'm sure you saw it yesterday saying like somewhat rising rates are not the worst thing. Right. She actually said that. And maybe there's a view that, you know, there's some unintended, unintended consequences of, the continued easy mon uh, monetary policy. We see it, I see it, I'm sure you see it from, you know, even your community home prices and the, and the voracious appetite for finding homes. I also think it plays out in the stock market. I mean, I have friends, colleagues, young, older, who, you know, make, it's hard to have lost money investing in anything in, in the public markets the last two years. In fact, you probably made a lot of money. That money's probably not in your $2.5 trillion number that you're throwing out there that's been saved. That's just kind of capital gains that are captive, not realized yet. So all of that, I think, would lead me to believe that you're probably right. I don't know how to, you know, when I think about how to underwrite real estate, I, I mentioned this on our prep call, and I've learned this at, at my first job, my two mentors out of uh, when I started in the field. There's like two or three things in real estate you really can't underwrite. One is rates. The second is environmental risk, right? And with those being in the back of our heads, if you really can't guess where rates go, you can make a hypothesis, but that's not really what the bet is that we're trying to make as lenders or investors in CRE. You're trying to find good real estate with good demographics, with good trends, good market rates, good good supply constraints, where you know there's a demand for that product. And and you mentioned liquidity or depth of market. That's also very important, right? Uh, an asset in Santa Fe, New Mexico should trade different than Chicago. So with that being said, are you doing anything different as you think about your own business and how you put out capital with your partners and, and us, knowing the backdrop you just highlighted? Yeah. The answer is no, because I agree with your, with your conclusion that although there is this, I think, emerging large thing happening on a macro level that we don't all fully understand what the consequences of it are going to be yet, 
we still have to make micro decisions and we have to yeah. stick to our knitting and make good uh, real estate investment decisions. And frankly, if what we would expect to happen, you know, we're going to have price inflation. We're going to have wage inflation. What's the other type of inflation? Asset inflation. Right. So if anything, it's going to, it could bail, it could bail people out. Uh, yeah. so, you, you know, you don't want to make, make investment decisions hoping that that's the case, but I think directionally, that's the way it would go. The most common response I hear from owners of real estate versus lenders in, in the CRE space is the following. Inherently, if you have inflation, you, you have a growing economy and inherently rents should go up. Therefore, any rising in rates or cap rates should be offset by your income growth. It doesn't always quite work that way. And we both know that real estate tends to have bigger gaps between peaks and troughs in the market. There's a lag that occurs. You have contractual leases that have longer periods of time on them. Stock market's a daily market market, if you will. Real estate is not set up like that, right? So you think about even historic shocks in the market previously, real estate always lags both on the downside and frankly, on the upside. And that kind of leads into a question we have here, Adam. You know, we've talked this ad nauseum in general, just whether it be between us ourselves or other partners of ours about the office market, particularly the work from home, which you highlighted, and the kind of excesses and the excess gluts. And I'll give my quick view. I'll love to hear yours. My view is that while I do think work from home, I think the end product will be a hybrid model. If I, if I was to take a guess and make a bet, I would say it's a hybrid concept. I don't know if it's three days, I don't know if it's four, if it's two, but different companies are making different bets. And over time, we'll all find out where the things shake out. But the conclusion I've reached is that most companies, even with a hybrid model, will not be able to dramatically shrink their footprint. Because even at a hoteling structure, I have a buddy who works at a, a Wall Street bank based in Midtown East, they're creating a hoteling structure. So they're going to have hot desks. You're going to come in two to three days a week. You're going to reserve that desk. That's going to be your desk for the day. And you're going to sign in the day before, pick your desk, and go in and work. They're, they're using their exact same footprint, but just using it in a different way. They're not giving space back. They're not subleasing space. Now, you could make the comment that maybe they are contractually obligated to keep that space for a period of time. They can't give it back yet. Maybe they'll reevaluate that in the future. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not smart to say what, how that shakes out. But I don't think the drop of usage of space is like 40%. It could be 10. It could be 15. I don't think it's more than that. So I don't know if you have a view on that particular point, but that's a question that was asked. I would agree with you. I think you know more so you're going to see lower utilization of space. You're going to see fewer people in, in the same number or just slightly fewer square foot feet of space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing, and, and we'll go back to this topic right now, because we did talk about like budget costs, construction costs, right? You had mentioned to me again in our prep call, you know, loans that would have been contemplated when people were acquiring land to develop a property a year or two years ago with the increased cost of labor, the increased cost of materials, even the ability to source materials, right? What does that mean for someone who owns a piece of real estate trying to develop that now having to raise an additional two to 5% equity, maybe have to borrow more, maybe puts their deal in jeopardy. Have you, you know, where's your head on that point? What have you seen in the marketplace? I'll give you my two cents after. Sure. Just to, just to set the backdrop on that a little bit, just a little bit more. So, you know, a year ago, a sheet of plywood could cost between 18 and $25. Today, that sheet of plywood will cost around $60. Two by fours that were $2 now cost $9. And all of this happened in a year. And it's a combination of uh, supply disruption and, um, you know, like extremely high demand for building materials. So uh, economists have surveyed builders 
and they found that um, you know there's a high degree of uncertainty and frankly stress on builders. And you know the vast majority of them are saying that you know each each of these little micro supply segments are they're either saying there are uh, acute shortages and difficulty in sourcing material or some amount of difficulty in sourcing material. So the problem is really significant for, for the builders, and it and it um, it filters through to the owners and developers of apartment buildings and any other kind of commercial real estate, and really on two levels. So on one hand, you have projects that are already in process that you know the construction budgets have been underwritten, you know their bank has made them the loan, and they're uh, you know they're providing construction draws every month. What's happening is those budgets are becoming out of balance. And construction lenders are either no longer advancing, or they are requiring the equity to, you know, write equity checks to balance to balance the budget. Uh, some combination of that. So it's leading to stalled projects and situations where, and also situations where, you know, equity has to infuse new capital that it wasn't planning on having, you know, putting into the deal to just keep the project going and finish the building. Absolutely. And on the other hand, you had a series of projects where you know the land was purchased on a, based on a certain set of assumptions, and now you know the, the budget, the hard cost budget to build what they were planning on building on that land has completely changed. So right. they can't raise the equity to you know to actually build, or they can't get a loan to build because the deal that they were what they were planning on building is doesn't make sense anymore. The yield on cost is getting lower and lower. So. The third thing we talked about yesterday, or I forget when we spoke, but was you actually also highlighted that as a contractor, GC, you know, they bid those and bid out the subs at a price. And as that price was fixed, let's say six, eight, 10 months ago, right? Now you're looking to a, a contractor with probably not the best credit, right? It, you're maybe bonding or insuring the project, but that, you know, they could just simply not be able to honor that agreement because they could go, they go to business. So, I mean, I've not seen that on projects that we're involved with. We don't do a ton of, of construction, but I'm curious if you've seen that at all. Or obviously there's a big announcement recently about the bankruptcy of a large construction company that had a big exposure, uh, a lot of projects in Jersey City and, and New Jersey in particular. That's just one example. But I wonder if you think that's going to be a trend that we may see over time. Yeah. I mean, this is like, this is causing cascading disruptions within that ecosystem of, of building and, and development of new projects. And uh, it's causing stress on um, you know all the participants within within that ecosystem. Yeah, in I think unpredictable like ways that are uneven and very situational. Yep. So I agree. We have a couple of questions I want to hit on if you don't mind, Adam. The first one that I want to touch on is this concept of like short term leases. Think of Regus. Think of WeWork. Think of Industrious versus the traditional way in which office users occupied space, 5, 10, 15-year leases with multiple extension options. I don't personally see enough data right now other than anecdotal from what you hear in announcements of companies, how they're approaching it, whether it be a hub-and-spoke model or other types of kind of satellite locations. But do you have a view on on that, where that goes? I, I don't know how, as owners and lenders, you can lend on real estate at the leverage points that historically people have if you have you know highly short-term leases, two, three, four years. I think that changes the whole economics of the CRE in particular. Yeah, it turns it turns you know office buildings into into more like hotels where you have short term cash flow and credit mixed into the rent roll, and you know, I don't think you can you just can't value cash flow with limited duration the same way you value cash flow with extended duration. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. I think I'm sure there'll be some owners who may have to be a market taker versus a market, you know, setter, if you will, of, of what they want. Um, but I, 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 knowing the way in which owners think, the whole game with CRE particularly is it's a, the most leverageable asset out there um, at a very attractive cost of capital. And so you only earn that to the extent you have long-term leases in place with tenants who have a demonstrable cash flows and ability to pay those rents, right? Just putting on paper high rent from a tenant with no credit does not really give you the benefit from a lender or from the market, I should say. So I personally... Don't have the answer to that. I don't think anyone is smart enough for now to make that call. But I don't think I think I think as a tenant, you probably would want that. I don't believe that as an owner that are in better financial condition, they're going to do that. That's my own view. I agree with yeah. you. I mean, look, you go back you back to the financial crisis, and you know the office landlords were market takers, right? That's 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 kind of that's was the first step in all of this. You know, right. at that time, WeWork was able to. You know, nobody wanted office space. We worked with the office space. They were able to basically, you know, set their terms and they took advantage of that disruption. But I, I don't, I don't have a, a view. I think maybe, maybe on the margin, you know, you're going to see a, a greater disbursement of offices, offices around different footprints around the country instead of, you know, uh, you know, million square foot footprints in New York city from JP Morgan. You know, you may see, um, you know, different divisions and different locations and, um, you know, large employers trying to introduce flexibility in the officing um, arrangement that they have with their employees. There's another question we had about, you know, the adaptive reuse or the, the changing of use. So, you know, people thinking about real estate becoming more adaptive or dynamic as a result of the pandemic. That's a very broad question. So I'm not really sure how to quite answer that. The way I think about it is real estate, certain real estate can become obsolete. The market can change you know, what was an office building 50 years ago with kind of smaller footprints on the floor plates, lower ceiling heights, small windows, right? What tenants are looking for evolves and the way people work evolves. And I guess you can make the argument that maybe the pandemic may have accelerated that trend in certain ways. I'm not, you know, I don't know exactly how that shakes out, but even with, for example, malls, right? You're, you're hearing and seeing universities or hospitals or biotech or self-storage or entertainment uses, you know, pre-pandemic, I should say, taking these huge blocks of space, 100,000 feet, 200,000 feet, and making adaptive reuse. Or even, you know, many malls are often located near highways in, in you know, dense locations, even multifamily growing on those sites and, and hotel use. So you can't re-adapt every property but even in New York specifically, there's a there's a trend and a view, I think, that we can now convert office to multifamily. I believe that that's in past. I've not always seen a huge drive to do that, but I do think that it'll have to be reevaluated and thought of. And to the extent it's obsolete, you know, repurposed in some fashion. Is it torn down? Is it demolished and rebuilt in a different form? I, I don't know how to answer that question. I think I think there's a lot to uh, a lot more time to figure that out. Let's move on to developing markets and and NPLs because you have a lot of experience on the NPL side. You've done it for some time. You've, you've bought notes, you've sold notes, you've exercised remedies against NPLs. I've said on previous webinars, you know, I think this whole distress, quote unquote distress cycle, at least in the immediate term, is really a farce for a host of reasons. And I won't regurgitate all of them, but curious, are you seeing any trends there? Are you seeing any green shoots? The extent that there's more opportunities available to you. Are you focusing time and energy pursuing those? I'll, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, I would say in a very, very limited way. I think, you know, we're 
we're seeing some opportunities and we're bidding in certain places. And, you know, frankly, the ones that we, that we feel comfortable bidding on in many cases get pulled back by the seller because, you know, they were marketing it. It was a price discovery exercise. There's plenty of room between, you know, the indebtedness and the value of the real estate and they feel comfortable in collecting. Obviously those are the ones that we want to buy. Right. So, and uh, you know, the banks are not being forced to clean up their portfolios yet. Usually it's, it's um, you know, several months after a crisis, uh, after things have stabilized, but the regulators start to push regulated institutions to start liquidating, you know, non-performing assets. And we're just, just kind of just getting there over the course of the next few months, I think. But that being said, I do think that, you know, uh, there have been some early sales. And I think that, you know, the buyers of these non-performing loans are early. You know, they're, they're buying with the banks, want to sell now at any cost. And, but there's been a lot of money raised around this investment strategy. Yep. Those, uh, those investors are going to buy. They're going to buy. And it's to be determined whether or not they're making the right call. Because they're not getting the best NPLs right now. Those are still sitting on the bank balance sheet. But are they actually successful anecdotally? You think of putting that money actually out? I, I'm, I've heard not on scale, right? Not on scale, yeah. right? That's interesting. Okay, and do you, um, there's been actually a couple articles as of late. You may have seen them about a couple well-known, I'd say, kind of alternative investment management companies, you know, quote unquote hedge funds, if you will, who have really kind of looked to take out their playbook from 08, particularly on the security side and fair value purchase option. For those who don't know what that is, effectively, if you're a controlling holder in a bond backed by commercial mortgage loans, you have the right to buy out these assets out of these pools at a, an appraised value less 10%. A lot of people made a lot of money in 08 by exercising those rights, buying the real estate at a fairly discounted price and, and biding their time and then flipping it two, three, four years later. Um, I'm not sure you saw that article. There's a couple of managers who were well-known doing that 10 years ago who are trying to do that again. But I was curious if you had if you had seen that and if you had a thought on that. I, I have my own thoughts. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, we're really sharpshooters. Uh, you know, we're buying, you know, loans on a one-off basis. And so we're you know, we're not deploying capital broadly and just, you know, taking a kind of risk on. I need a couple hundred million dollars of this product right now, whatever, whatever's available. That's not the way we're approaching it. We're really looking at individual assets. And we also don't have the scale really to play in the securitized uh, space. Yeah, it definitely takes a skill set and uh, a deep capital base, you know, relationship with banks who really drive the, the trading of those products. Any questions, folks, feel, feel free to, we're, ending, we're entering the last five minutes here of this call. So if you want to ask any questions, please feel free to, to enter them. The last question, and then we'll kind of go out to uh, end the call here. You know, we talked about hotels very, very briefly. Do you like the hotel sector? Have you put money to work in the last 12 months in hotels? If not, why not? And looking forward, where do you see that going for you? Right. So we've made one loan to a buyer of a non-performing loan, which is secured by a hotel. And, you know, that's the only hotel loan that we've ever made at, at, at a fine capital. You know, it's just been a segment of the market that we've completely shied away from and made us look, made us look smart <laughs> the, right. uh, you know, during the pandemic because, you know, the value of those hotels is in excess of the bricks, right? Because there's, there's enterprise value that sits within a successfully run hotel. And we're not hotel operators, so you know we're not equipped to extract that value or maintain that value. So you know we've, as a general rule, stayed away from it. Yeah, I do tend to agree with you. And you know you want to think that there's also a 
if you're looking at a hotel deal, a loan or an investment on the equity side, you, you hope to have like a plan B or C. Couldn't that be converted to multifamily use for a relatively reasonable cost to your basis? Can you convert that to multifamily? Can you demolish it and build another use that may have a need in that locale? But you're right. It's Hotels by far is probably the most business-like for CRE asset there is out there. I think with that, we're going to conclude. It looks like there's no more questions. I want to say first off, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today on The Yield. We really appreciate it. We did a great job. I mean, I always appreciate talking to you and your time. Um, for those of you watching, and t- thanks for tuning in. Please remember to visit yieldstreet.com backslash offerings to explore all of our open opportunities. Subscribe to our show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And visit us on all of our social channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, to reserve your seat. Adam, Avant Capital, thanks again for your time today, man. Have a great day, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Chad Mitch. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.